Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, in 1573, an alchemist named Anna Ziegleren gave her patron, the Duke of Braunschweig-Rufenbüttel, the recipe for something she called the lion's blood, which, among other things, would stimulate the growth of plants, create gemstones, transform lead into the coveted philosopher's stone, and serve as a critical role in preparing for the last days. And that was not all. Anna proposed that the lion's blood, paired with her own body, could even generate life repopulating and redeeming the corrupt world in its final moments. This is an incredible story about an incredible woman in an incredible time, and by incredible, I mean it in the true sense of the word, on the bounds, perhaps beyond the bounds, of the credible. It is told by Tara Numadel in her book Anna Ziegleren and the Lion's Blood, Alchemy and End Times in Reformation Germany, in which she weaves not only biography and history together, enabled by meticulous detective work and imagining of what is now nearly unimaginable, but also the histories of gender, early modern science, the Reformation, and Europe. European power politics as practiced perhaps in its most vicious form within the principalities of 16th century Germany. Tara Numadal is Associate Professor of History at Brown University and author of Alchemy and Authority in the Holy Roman Empire. Tara, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, in the, the State Museum of Braunschweig, there is an iron chair. You begin yeah. the, the the story with that iron chair, and then you return to it at the end. So let's talk about that iron chair. It, it reminded me of studying German in Germany and the strange, um, the belief that Germans have that nothing attracts tourists like a good uh, museum of torture. <laughs> and as at the time I was, I was young, but I wasn't stupid. And I was fairly convinced that about 90% of everything in it was not actually instruments of torture uh, or had actually been used even in Germany, if it was. And and you, you sort of back me up a little bit. Let's talk about that iron chair. Absolutely. So so this is a chair that is, um, it, it actually looks sort of like a Renaissance office chair. It, it has a pedestal. Yeah. It's like the um, office chair it, is designed by a blacksmith. Exactly. So it's, yeah, so it's iron and it's sort of has punch designs on it, but it, it had wheels on the bottom. So it's kind of a swivel chair. Um, mm. So even, you know, the first sight of it is kind of unusual. It doesn't seem somehow like a 16th century chair, mm -mm. Um, but it, it is in the museum in Braunschweig. And as a few years ago, they had an exhibit to celebrate the 120th anniversary of their museum. And they put 120 interesting objects on display. And this was one of them. And it was in this context that I first heard about the chair. I had already read about the chair in some 19th century sources, but I had no idea it still existed. So as it's presented in the museum, the, the wall text calls it purportedly a witch's chair. And it is attributed to um, Anna Siegleren. So it is said to be the iron chair in which she was executed through fire in 1575. Um, and, you know, there it sits as kind of a testament 
to the the brutality of the early modern justice system, right? Mm-hmm. To this kind of a public execution. It's associated with witchcraft. Yep. And you're absolutely right to link it to these museums of crime and punishment that exist in Germany, <laughs> many of which were founded in the 19th century at the same moment that this yeah. object entered the museum. It, it's yeah. very much of the 19th century. In fact, figure 16 in the book, which is on page 189, I, I I wonder if the museum curator for that exhibit got the information about the chair almost from the painting, which is itself from approximately 1848, and which shows a crowd gathered watching someone being burned to death on what looks like a swing. And right. it's the iron chair suspended above uh, and with Anna being burned inside the chair. As she right. So the, the chair, chair under, under the armrests has loops um, yeah. out of iron under the under the armrest. And so it sort of raises the question of what it's for. So it's this curious object that um, is imagined in this 19th century painting that you point to. Yeah. That's sort of how it was imagined to have been used. Um, but it's a very strange object. <laughs> it's a strange um, object because a, it looks so modern in some ways. There's the there's cutouts for the okay. legs. It's contoured for the way the legs come down. Um, the, the base of it is beautiful. Actually, it's very, it's, it's not the greatest blacksmithing, but it's got this sort of, uh, acanthus leaves, sort of a foliage. It's very decorative. Mm -hmm. It's got this, Mm -hmm. it's spindled. Um, the, the blacksmith has sort of, um, recreated, uh, wood lathes, um, the way Mm -hmm. something would be lathed, um, on, uh, um, and it's, it's really nice. And yet it has this story, which, um, sort of triggers, pushes all our buttons to say, oh, yeah, which is sure they did. People are crazy back then. They're just <laughs> exactly. they, they, they don't know nothing. Now we're, we're modern and we're smart. And and we um, our own justice system is more rational. Right. Yes. We don't believe in things like witchcraft. We don't torture people no. um, to extract, you know, the so-called truth from them. We certainly don't execute them publicly through this you know, brutal way, as it's depicted in that painting that you mentioned, mm-hmm. like a public execution. Exactly. So we sort of feel looking at this object on the one hand, kind of horrified that it's, you know, such an awful object, um, intrigued at the same time. And we feel a little bit relieved that and we it, don't live and, then, right? And we have a tingle of self-satisfaction, which mm-hmm. keeps us warm and cozy. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, the 19th century stories about Anna, uh, how did they, in many ways, uh, you end with that, and I want to begin with it, because sort of yeah. peel back the layers, because yeah. the 19th century... Um, as it did with the Salem witch trials, as it did with mm-hmm. many, many, many things uh, in this period of the 16th and 17th centuries, in a really interesting way, uh, parenthetically, it's really interesting the stories that we tell about the genesis of a recognizably modern world. Um, mm-hmm. It is um, the genesis of the modern world. It often now, the in our narration, seems anti-modern. And perhaps mm-hmm. th- that makes us uncomfortable. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. But how did the 19th century tell, what did the stories did they tell about Anna in the 19th century Germany? Right. So in 19th century, the first thing to say is that she was a sort of marginal point, mm-hmm. you know, marginal character in these stories. 
the stories were for the most part about her patron, mm-hmm. um, who was Duke Julius of um, Braunschweig Lüneburg, Braunschweig Goldenbüttel, and his wife, Hedvig, Duchess Hedvig. Um, and most of the stories were about Anna Sigurdin's collaborator, a guy named Philip Zummering, who was also an alchemist and a former pastor um, in, in Saxony. And Anna Sigurdin appears as this kind of seductive, charismatic, charlatan who essentially used her sexuality to seduce Duke Julius. And she was the sort of um, bait in a way for this scheme that they, you know, were said to have carried out in Wolfenbüttel in order to attract the patronage of Duke Julius. She's a sort of a Circe as grifter. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. And she's she's imagined um, she she's a kind of a stock character in a lot of histories of this region that are produced in the 19th century. The chair, of course, is an artifact associated with her, the painting. She appears in a novel um, called The Devil's Doctor from Wolfenbüttel that was published in 1873 by a man named Georg Hiltel. Um, and in that novel, she's imagined as someone who's actually 150 years old, but who had taken the elixir of life in order to maintain her youth. Um, you know, so she's this kind of sort of sexy, yeah. <laughs> fraudulent yeah. and very charismatic and intriguing character, but certainly not one who's taken very seriously. And right. I encountered her for the first time in, a, in an 1883 book, and she earned about a paragraph um, that just sort of said, and then there was this woman there as well, and she had lots of crazy ideas. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I love that. <laughs> you, so you saw a paragraph, and you, yep. your, you, your, all your, your spidey sense tingled. Uh, exactly. And you said, exactly. how do I find out more about that? Had you seen? You hadn't seen the chair by that time. No, I found out. But I found out about the chair about five years into this project, and oh, really? I'm completely blown away. I had no idea that this thing existed, um, and I I had bought the story because all the 19th century stories end with the execution of this group of alchemists, and it was always repeated. And Anna Sigurdin was executed, strapped to an iron chair in the fire. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and it, I always thought that was a strange story because that I had never seen any other examples of 16th century executions involving a chair like that. So mm-hmm. it always seems strange, but I thought I'll get to that eventually when I write the end of the book, <laughs> the end of the story. Um, and then a curator from the museum contacted me when they were putting together this exhibition and said, so we have this chair. <laughs> and I, <laughs> so, a contact yeah. relic. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. There is something about it, right? The object itself becomes kind of charismatic. Hey, look, you're talking to someone who deals with like the American Revolution and founding fathers. <laughs> I mean, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm right down from Monticello, which is, you know, one of the biggest contact relics in American history, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so we're surrounded by them. But it, it, it's it's hard to find them. Uh, for the middle, it, mm-hmm. surprisingly hard for the for the Middle Ages to find mm-hmm. the, the, something like this. Um, it's very exciting. Right. Um, right. What, just not to give too much away, but what do you actually think this iron chair is or was? So it is possible that it was from the 16th century. Um, there, there is some evidence of other desk chairs in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, <laughs> there is, certainly um, in Italy there yeah. is. I mean, there, there are plenty right, of paintings yeah. of them, of something akin exactly. to this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's possible that it's from the 16th century. Um, there are also examples of um, wheelchairs from this period, including Philip II of Spain was said to have had a kind of rolling lounge chair. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there is one story about this chair that it was, in fact, the wheelchair 
before Duke Julius, and then it was kind of repurposed for the execution. Um, I, an iron wheelchair seems strangely heavy to me. <laughs> um, it's also said to be occasionally that maybe it was a sedan chair and that the loops under the, the seat are that, you know, um, wooden rods or something would have been put through it to lift him up. But again, the fact that it's out of iron um, <laughs> doesn't how, seem like the best material did they, for that. They didn't let you lift it up, did they? I mean, how heavy is it? No, no, I didn't lift it up. <laughs> well, it is, it is thin. It's true. It's thin, you know, pieces of iron, yeah. but it's, it's still metal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's possible it has some kind of white blooms on it that suggests it might have been in the fire at some point. Mm. Um, you know, so it's possible, but we don't know when. And the, the objects, even the, the kind of the way it's presented in the museum is very much with a kind of question mark over it. The language uh -huh. to describe it is sort of hypothetical. You know, it, it is said to belong to Anna Siegelden and said yeah. to have been used, right? So they it's say. uncertain. Yeah, people say. Right. They say. People say. <laughs> um, always, always safe. That's a pro tip. Yes. Um, <laughs> what? How was she actually killed? She, we don't know. Yeah. There is no evidence from the moment of her execution. Um, the first documentation we have of her execution was about 10 years later, where she's described in a chronicle as having been executed by fire. So we don't actually know. I think she probably was executed by fire, or burned at the stake, as, as we would say, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's no contemporary evidence of that, you know, from that moment. Um, and there's no description of it. And that, that in itself is a little strange because early modern executions were so often public, right? right. Broadsheets were published and it was kind of a festival of justice. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't seem to have been the case in, in this particular execution. That is very, that is very so, curious. Yes. I was just yeah. talking about that with uh, w w with someone about corporal punishment in the 18th century, and mm -hmm. um, of course the whole point of the whole point of early modern punishment punishment really up until the middle of the 19th century is that it's public. Um, it's public and it's meant to to, to demonstrate the crime, right? Yeah, and so exactly. the fact that if she was executed through fire, that in itself would have communicated that it had something to do with the most heinous crimes and the mm -hmm. most heinous violations of the community. Typically, treason. you know, heresy or treason or um, sorcery or sodomy was another one yeah. sometimes, or arson, right? So yeah. the most heinous crimes. Betrayals, uh, which and all of them in, in, in the way, their way of thinking are betrayals of the, of the legal or the natural order. Um, okay. And those, exactly. those, those such criminals need to be literally purged and removed from the earth. Um, Absolutely. So that there's no body left also, yep. right? That could yep. become a relic in its own way. And so. whatever is left is then usually put into a river so that it's mm -hmm. completely dispersed and there no mm -hmm. trace exists of this violator of the natural, of the natural or the, over the civil order. Um, th these, these punishments have a logic to them. Um, what, um, well, we're, let's, we're going to have to back up. Um, we were okay. just before we were talking, um, you said you're used to people thinking that what you're talking about is absolutely insane. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, uh, as I was reading this, I thought many times of what's now a really hackney cliche. Uh, if I could, I wish I could double emphasize it even or triple emphasize it. Uh, that quote from a 1950s play, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently mm -hmm. there. Uh, mm -hmm. That is, I think, usually misused. Uh, when I hear it, I think, oh, it's just a foreign country. Uh, I can learn a foreign language. I, I visit foreign countries. Um, I can spend time there. 
I can eventually, I can have a better understanding than I do now of what a foreign country is like. That's not the way people use it. They usually, usually mean it's something incommensurable. It's unintelligible. Um, and there are moments in this book where I'm going to think, man, this is, I, I don't get this. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I have more advantages than most um, yeah. uh, than people who are reading this. So it really is 16th century Germany has to be I mean, there, there is level of confusion upon confusion uh, yeah. uh, because it's so different from what we now recognize. For example, um, we have to start with the nature of Germany at the time. Um, Germany is a concept. Uh, the reality is very different. So what's the political nature of Germany at the time? Right. So we talk, we talk about it as Germany, but at the time it was called the Holy Roman Empire. And there was an emperor at the top um, who was technically elected by, by several senior princes who would have you know, elected the emperor. But there were literally hundreds of principalities within the Holy Roman Empire. And crucially, each of them was different. And so there were duchies, right? There were, there were dukes, there were counts. They tend to just get called princes when we talk about them to sort of there are even bishops. that out. Prince bishops, right? There are, um, and it's it's worth pointing out that some of these territories were Catholic, some were Protestant, some were Lutheran. Eventually, some were Calvinist as well. Mm -hmm. um, there were um, imperial free cities who were self-governing with a kind of communal government or republican form of government, which could and range from beholden... a, yeah, which could range from oligarchic to something more Athenian. Um, you know exactly. Yeah. And who were beholden only to the emperor, right? And then there were many layers of imperial bureaucracy as well. So there was, you know, an imperial legal code that technically governed the entire empire. Um, but within that, there were also city legal codes, right? And yeah. and so on and so on. And so it is maddening to try to understand <laughs> the political and to try to teach, I might add, when I'm talking to my students, um, you know, what this kind of political system is. Yeah. And of course, all these boundaries were constantly shifting because it's... 16th century is still this moment that's sort of between a medieval political order that where, you know, boundaries are their inherited territories and they go with the prince. Um, and eventually they would sort of stabilize into places we might now recognize as Bavaria, for example, or Saxony, right? But at this moment, you know, if a, if a prince died with no heir, then maybe his cousin got the territory and then it merged into something else. And so even to sort of produce a map of the 16th century Holy Roman Empire is incredibly difficult yes. because you have to decide a map when, which mm -hmm. precise year, right? Uh, it, and if we had one, it would be great to have a digital, I mean, there probably is one, uh, a digital map, which changes from year to year, even not just from that decade to decade. It would probably, it would look like a, uh, some sort of mold, sort of like yes. altering its shape <laughs> over a hundred years, going yeah, back and forth. It would be very, it would be very different. And it, it just, is, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, no, it's just, it's incredibly complicated. And um, yeah, so we, we talk easily about Germany, right? But we always have to be very precise about what we're talking about yeah. and when and where. Just as an experiment, the listener can find any small town or small city in Germany and look at its history and find out the size of the principality that it was in, say, oh no, 1550, 1600. You'll be astonished at how small they are. Um, mm -hmm. Any American will be shocked. Uh, uh, Rhode Island was a super state compared to some of them. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Um, so the political nature is extremely complex. And as you alluded to, the religious nature of Germany at the time is the, I think it's safe to say, other than India, 
<laughs> the most com <laughs> the most complex place, uh, cer right. certainly in Christendom, uh, broadly right. understood. Yeah. So, like, right. go ahead, take it away. No, I, yeah. So, um, so the moment that we're talking about, the moment in this book, right, is sort of the 1560s and 1570s. So this is kind of um, second generation Lutheranism, right? Mm -hmm. So. Luther, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in 1517. Um, but, you know, there were several decades of, of warfare from the beginning where Luther and, and Protestant allies were fighting to simply have Protestantism or Lutheranism or the evangelical faith recognized as a legitimate option, right? Mm -hmm. And and that settlement is is sort of reached in 1555 with the Peace of Augsburg. This is something many people learn about in high school. Um, quius regio, eus religio, right? So mm -hmm. um, whoever rules, it's his religion. And, and so princes have the option after 1555 of determining the religion of their territory. And the, the options are two, Catholicism or Lutheranism, right? Um, and so that's in 1555. What's what's interesting and what's important context for this book is that, again, we talk about something called Lutheranism, but Lutherans themselves had not reached any kind of settlement about official Lutheran doctrine until the 1580s. So this is many, many decades into, quote, the Reformation, where Lutherans are trying to figure out what exactly do we believe. Mm -hmm. And along with that, princes who do decide to embrace the Reformation and to introduce the Reformation into their territories and to simply declare we're now Protestant, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, coming with that is a whole kind of social, political, economic, and legal reconfiguration of the institutions in their territories. Um, if you get rid of Catholic, um, you know, buildings and make them Lutheran, you have to decide what to do with them. You have to create um, new legal structures and you have to create new ecclesiastical structures as well with the prince at the top of the ecclesiastical structure in Protestant mm -hmm. states. Right. There's no Lutheran pope to tell you what to do. And so princes end up having to make these theological decisions about Okay, this is the kind of Lutheran we are here in <laughs> Braunschweig, Lüneburg, right? And it's different from the kind of Lutherans they are in Saxony. Yeah. This is one of the, uh, the great features of the history of Lutheranism is that Luther is not a systematic theologian. He's, uh, right. he's a very garrulous polemicist. Um, <laughs> and that means there's a lot to choose from. And, and right. based on all his companions, I mean, Bugenhagen and all the rest of them, they're also very garrulous. They all write a lot. Uh, so is mm -hmm. Philip Melanchthon. Um, and Philip Melanchthon tries to be a systematic theologian, but he's really bad at it. So mm -hmm. the, the advantage the Calvinists always have is they have a basic operating system. And the Lutheran, from the outset. From right? the outset. Yeah. And it's very short, at least originally. Yep. Um, and Lutherans do not. So there are as many varieties of Lutherans as there are Lutheran states um, exactly. at the time. And in addition to that, we've got the fact is, is that by 1530, the gates are open. We've got Mennonites. We've got all sorts of varieties of Mennonites. Mm -hmm. um, we've got mm -hmm. Kaspar Schwenkfeld, who knows, he, who kind of believes that every individual is their own church. We've got, mm -hmm. uh, we've got what we would call sort of Unitarians now. Um, mm -hmm. We've got every kind of variety. These people are all just floating around like, you know. Radical uh, peasants. Radical right? peasants. Yeah. We've got every variety of sort of belief that many of which we would recognize in this day is, is existing and floating around and bumping into one another. And at the same time, we've got lots of medieval quote unquote beliefs um, that okay. continue to exist as we'll get to in just a second. Um, I, well, I guess right now, um, alchemy. <laughs> 
yeah. alchemy is not necessary. First of all, how would you define alchemy? Oh, well, the first thing I would say <laughs> is that um, that alchemy has a very long history. And so, again, you have to specify sort of which alchemy you're talking yep. about and yep. at what point. So alchemy is um, has its origins in the first couple centuries of the Common Era in Roman Egypt, particularly in Alexandria, and emerged out of this kind of mix of Greek, Greek natural philosophy um, kind of practical artisanal techniques with metallurgy and making synthetic gemstones and, you know, synth synthetic um, dyes, things like this. And then the, the kind of syncretic religious culture of that period with Gnosticism, you know, early Christianity, um, Egyptian mystery cults, Roman religion, all of this stuff kind of floating around. Philo's so, uh, Hel uh, Hellenized Judaism? It, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so all of this kind of feeds into. So I always think of alchemy at its origins as having these three different strains to it. One is this philosophical tradition coming from Greece and Rome. Um, the second is this artisanal tradition, practical hands on, you know, knowledge of how to work with nature mm -hmm. and particularly how to transform nature mm -hmm. and how to make it more valuable. And then the third piece is this idea that, you know, perhaps some philosophy is based in revelation and perhaps one can learn something about God or gods <laughs> by mm -hmm. learning about nature. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you trace alchemy's history um, from that that early moment in the first few centuries until today, because there are still alchemical practitioners, those three elements kind of come and go and rise and fall. And sometimes one becomes more important. Um, sometimes others do, and it's kind of translated into more modern terms over time, right? So yeah. um, Carl Jung wrote a lot about alchemy, and, uh, you know, around the turn of the century. But he his vision of what alchemy was was a kind of circa 1900 vision of mm -hmm. what alchemy was. It's not the same as what Anas Egonen thought alchemy was. So um, that's what's fascinating is that it's a coherent tradition, and yet it has been incredibly adaptable. And it, and it thrived in different cultural contexts in the medieval Islamic world, in Byzantium, um, in medieval and early modern Europe. And, you know, it, it has survived till today. So by – where does um, Hermes Trismegistus – did I say that right? Where does that yes. sort of that sort of occult knowledge of, of, her, of the hermetic tradition – that seems – as I recall, I was starting to get very moldy in my in my in my memory. Um, seems to reinterject itself strongly around 1450. Um, in the right, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, what 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 is that? Is that which tradition is that? Is that the third? Is that this idea of there's some sort of secret revelation that can be discovered? Yes, yes, and so. Um, so the, the alchemy's history within Europe is it, you know, it sort of works its way into Europe only in the Middle Ages, only mm -hmm. in the 12th century. And it comes to Europe via the Islamic world primarily and eventually through Byzantium, through the Greek tradition. So it's really Arabic alchemical texts um, and Greek alchemical texts eventually that Europeans are reading. And so, you know, from the Islamic world and from the um, Arabic alchemical texts, what uh, Europeans get is the sort of philosophical tradition of antiquity and the um, Arabic commentaries and elaborations on that tradition, um, as well as the very practical knowledge. But there's another thread in the Arabic literature that is this kind of secret knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And and alchemy, um, Hermes Trismegistus is purportedly a kind of 
ancient Egyptian contemporary of Moses, right? right. Very yeah. close to perhaps the original revelations to God. And um, he gets associated with alchemy in Arabic texts in the, I think in the ninth century or so. Mm -hmm. um, texts about alchemy get attributed to Hermes. And so alchemy eventually comes to be known as the hermetic art, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but it is in the 15th century that um, some, the hermetic corpus, which is in Greek and which comes from the Byzantine Empire, um, that is a collection of texts, reach, finds its way to Florence. And um, Cosimo de' Medici says, forget Plato, let's translate this, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and that kind of reintroduces this very different ancient tradition, right? That's not Aristotle and Plato, but it's much more of this idea of philosophy as revelation. Mm -hmm. and, and it's often talked about as wisdom rather than philosophy, right? Yeah. In the sense that it's perhaps less rational and it might depend on revelation. I, and I, I love that, what, what Cosimo's remark, because that... Um we've now forgotten Hermes. We don't take them seriously. Mm -hmm. They have a very different attitude. Plato, you know, Aristotle, yeah. you know, uh, Hermes, <laughs> right. that's the good stuff. Uh, that's where, that's right. where, the, that's where the action really is. Um, and that's where, right. that's where people like Anna and many, many, many others, including Isaac Newton are putting their intellectual mm -hmm. firepower. Um, they're, they're putting it on that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and this, as you say, it takes different guises, um, by the 17th century in England, um, all the founders of the Royal Society are, are fascinated with this. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's John Wilkins, uh, as he's working on mm -hmm. what will become sort of the original programming language in some way. Uh, Leibniz sort of takes up the same project. They're trying to recreate the language before the Tower of Babel. This is mm -hmm. the, this this sort of strange combination of history, revelation, practical knowledge, all coming together to try to recreate um, this universe, the language that will enable us to unlock all the secrets of the world around us. Right, right, yeah. And so, you know, chemical secrets of nature are divine secrets for many people. Yeah. But at the same time, they're also incredibly practical. You know, so by the 16th century. Alchemists are making, and and I should say that I, this term is a very capacious, you know, <laughs> alchemy is a very capacious category. So alchemists might be involved in mining and doing kind of metallurgical work, smelting yeah. metals and so on. They might be involved in distilling medicines out of minerals and metals rather than plants. Um, they might be involved in more philosophical work and the kind of thing that you're talking about. So there are lots of different kinds of alchemists yeah. in this period. And it's increasingly, there are more and more texts by the 16th century that are available in the vernacular that are printed. And so alchemy is becoming more kind of accessible to literate people um, and, you know, something that's kind of appealing. Right? I think the like sort of the last 20 minutes of our discussion and one of the, the sort of the, I don't know, the sort of vertigo inducing parts of the story is the lack of definitions that we recognize. Um, and the fact that these people's definitions are, are either don't exist so far as we're concerned or so radically different. They have a very different definition of Germany. They have a very different definition of state. They have a different definition of Lutheran or Christian or Protestant and of chemistry and philosophy and revelation and et cetera and science and so on and so on and so on, which makes this all very, very complex to sort of dig yes. into. So hopefully we've established some of the foundation for this. Um, so the big question, who is Anna Ziegler in? Um, what's, what's the backstory? Where does she appear? 
Where'd she come the from? Backstory. Yeah, the backstory. <laughs> so I will begin by telling you the story that she tells about herself, Good. perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, she said that she was born into a noble family, a very prominent noble family um, that Ziegler is in Saxony, around in Dresden, um, around 1545 or so, and that she sort of grew up in the orbit of the Elector of Saxony, Elector August of Saxony, and his wife, uh, Anna of Saxony, another Anna, and that she kind of grew up at that court. So, you know, she presents herself as of elite status and, you know, at home in the courtly culture of the Holy Roman Empire. Hmm. Um, she was married very young as a teenager, and which was not, you know, atypical in that period. And unfortunately, her husband died several weeks after they were married in a horse accident. <laughs> and so she was essentially a teenage widow. Um, and this was a problem for her family. Basically, they needed to kind of place her, right, and sort of get her squared away somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so her family pressured her to remarry, and she eventually married a man named Heinrich Schombach, who was a courtier at a different princely court in in a different. So I should say there are two Saxonies in this period. So um, just to keep to make things even more confusing. We, you sure there weren't yes. three? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was debatable. So she grew up in electoral Saxony. Um, her husband, her second husband, Heinrich, um, uh, was active at the court and was involved in the court in ducal Saxony in Gotha. Mm -hmm. And he um, was known by the nickname of cross-eyed Heinz. He was a kind of courtier and a court jester, purportedly, a kind of hanger-on. So for Anna Siegelin, this was definitely a step down for her, right? This was not the kind of life she envisioned for herself. Um, and she wasn't particularly happy about it. But nevertheless, it, you know, her, her brothers pressured her and she was sort of you know, taken, taken care of that way. Mm -hmm. um, do you put any credence in any of her story? I think um, so. One of the one of the kind of main points of this book is how slippery everything is in yep. this book. We began with the chair. Her own life is another example of that. I think that she probably was. I think she was Saxon. That mm -hmm. part seems <laughs> reasonable. Um, I think she. You know, it's not clear to me that I can't exactly trace her lineage. I don't have a you know a baptismal register or something like that. I've mm -hmm. tried. Um, she may have grown up in noble circles. She certainly was comfortable in court culture. You know, right. She spent her life in three different princely courts. And so that makes some sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, there's another story about her birth that she tells a bit later, which I could also share unless you want to talk about it later. <laughs> Let's talk about that later because that's people uh, that might be yeah. too much right now. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about Gotha. Um, yes. And. There, I have in my notes, talking with the angels. Um, yes. Explain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she marries Heinrich, her husband, and they travel to Gotha, to the court with which he was affiliated. And they arrive at a very um, interesting and complicated moment in the history I'll of say. Ducal Saxony in Gotha. And the prince there was Duke Johann Friedrich II. And... Um, he he there's a kind of earlier history of warfare between the two Saxonies that I won't really go into. But the point is that Johann Friedrich, his, his court is kind of on the wane. Basically, it has lost power. This was the original kind of homeland of the Reformation and of Luther and had once been a very prominent court, but had kind of, you know, fallen apart a little bit. 
And so Duke Johann Friedrich, um, one of his courtiers, brings to his attention a peasant boy named Hensien, so little, little Hans, um, who was a teenager who said that he saw little men and that he believed that they were angels and that he could communicate with them. And one of the Duke's uh, courtiers finds out about this boy and says, brings him to court and says, this could be, you know, quite useful, right, to have someone at court who can speak to angels. The Duke is initially skeptical. Several people are skeptical and they sort of, you know, conduct an investigation to find out, is this for real? Is this boy really talking to angels? Is this the influence of the devil, right? Is he talking to demons? Is he deluded somehow? But they conclude that, in fact, yes, he is. Um, speaking to these angels. Can, and can, we, the next can we stop, is, can we yes. stop right sure. there? <laughs> sure. Because, of course, at this point, people are, what What? what did, t- talking to angels? <laughs> talking uh, to angels. But this is actually a thing in the 16th yes. century. So could you explain in, this whole, this tradition of talking with angels, the angelic language is, it's a thing. It's a thing. And I think, so I should say that the Duke Johann Friedrich is Protestant, right? I mm-hmm. mentioned this was kind of the homeland of the Reformation. So this is Protestant territory. And one of the um, the losses, in a way, for Protestants was the loss of all these intermediaries between humans and God, namely the saints, yeah. right? Saints are tossed out with the Reformation. And um, so there's a sense of kind of loss there. And it is perhaps for that reason that... Um, People begin to have encounters with angels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, often common people, right, um, encounter angels in the countryside and so on. And typically what would happen is you should bring this to the attention of your local pastor or someone who can um, do something with this information, right? So angels might reveal something to you um, about what is to happen, you know, a particular political course to take and so on. And, you know, so and th- this is the kind of thing that Hansi um was was also engaged in. So it's not unusual. There are a lot of broadsheets in the 16th century about angelic visitations. You know, uh-huh. an angel appeared here in this vineyard, and here's what it said, right? And yep. now we're publishing this so everyone can know. And there are uh, others, like, uh, as you mentioned, and the best-known person in the, English, in the English-speaking world is John Dee, who's at yes. the court of Elizabeth I, and who is yes. a serious mathematician. Um, and also is fascinated with the angelic language. And and this is, in many ways, this prefigures the later interest of John Wilkins and then of, of, of Leibniz in uh, a universal language. That is, they're, the language before Babel was believed to have been an ange- the angelic language. Yes, absolutely, right? And so Dee is a, is, you know, a serious scholar, right? And he yes. spends many, many years working with a scryer named Edward Kelly, um, working with, you know, what we would now call a crystal ball, right? Where he can, <laughs> Kelly can see and communicate with these angels. And so D poses the questions, Kelly talks to the angels and then gives D the answer. And, you know, this is, this is seen as the best information about nature, about God, about the world, right? This is, mm-hmm. um, this, this is, is incredibly profound information. This is the music of the spheres in, yes. in, in some way. Um, so all this goes pear-shaped. Um, in really spectacular yes. fashion. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> go on. shall I continue? Yeah, please, yeah. Okay. So, Duke Johann Friedrich not only has um, Hansi, you know, a little Hans at his court, but he also has a, a knight, a Franconian knight called Wilhelm Grumbach. And Grumbach is another character who is kind of 
lost power. Um, he, Grumbach had had a feud with a local prince bishop and, and he was kind of losing his territories and there had been a lot of, you know, battles back and forth. And this Grumbach affair gets called by historians the Grumbach feud, right? This feud that he has with this prince bishop, which eventually um, Grumbach comes to Gotha, comes to the court of Duke Johann Friedrich. And the two of them kind of bond over the fact that they're, they've kind of lost power, right? And they're getting a little bitter and they kind of think that they're better than other people think that they are at that moment, right? And they, they kind of bond in this, yeah, bitter brew. <laughs> and it is Grumbach who um, brings Hansi ultimately to Duke Johann Friedrich's attention and brings Hansi to the court and so over the next four years, Grumbach and the Duke are consulting the angels about what to do about everything. So it could be as trivial as the Duchess has a toothache. What should we do about this? It could be um, economically significant, like we need more money at this court, right? Where can we locate a, a, a mine, a new source of gold or silver, right? Um, but the angels also, <laughs> through Hansi and through Grumbach, consulted on political affairs and particularly on the Grumbach feud. Eventually, Grumbach gets in trouble with the Holy Roman Emperor and is put under a ban. And the Duke is pressured to basically hand him over to the Emperor to justice. And the Duke says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to protect him. I'm going to keep him at my court. And the angels essentially goad the Duke into this confrontation with the emperor and convince the Duke that he has this epic destiny, right? And that he is, in fact, the last world emperor, which is a crucial part of stories about the apocalypse. Oh, and that know. this confrontation with the emperor is actually part of the end times that are unfolding, you know, of all places in Gotha in Eastern <laughs> Germany, <laughs> near Weimar in the, in the 1560s. And so the Duke ends up in this series of confrontations with political authority um, that to all other outsiders and people write to him and say, essentially, what are you doing? This, is, this makes no sense. You are never going to win this battle. But the Duke is convinced that, you know, he is on literally a divine mission. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, he, this all sort of culminates in 1567 when imperial troops and the troops of his um, Saxon cousin and rival uh, besiege the, the ducal court in Gotha for a series of um, three months in 1567. And eventually, you know, Hansi and Krumbach um, and the Duke completely lose this standoff and are, and are captured and, um, you know, <laughs> fall victim to imperial justice for, you know, waging this conflict. Yeah, you could say um, Grumbach is, in fact, quartered while alive. So that's um, that's falling yes. victims at justice. All right. Uh, yes, he is. In a, in, yeah, in a really spectacular execution. And Hansi is also executed. Duke Johann Friedrich is in prison for the rest of his life and unfortunately lived a very long life. <laughs> so he was in prison for, for many, many years. So where where is Anna and Heilich in all this? They're, they're, they're courtier, yes. courtiers at, the, at there. And so uh, now they're in search of a position. I guess. Right. So they, they were present at the court as all of this was unfolding. They basically arrive at the same time as Hansi. And her husband, Heinrich, is a courtier. They they get to know another courtier named Philip Zimmering, who um, had been trained as a pastor in Saxony, but basically found these Lutheran 
battles just too complicated and too stressful and decided to turn to alchemy instead. <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, so Philip Sommering is sort of proposing alchemical projects to Duke Johann Friedrich at the same moment that all this stuff is, you know, going down with the emperor and, you know, these angels and all of this. Somehow in the midst of this, the Duke is signing a contract with Philip Zumering. Mm. And the person who brokers that contract is Anna Sigurin's husband, Heinrich. Mm. So the three of them are kind of getting to know each other as this court is completely collapsing. And at the end of the siege and with the end of the execution, they basically, you know, were kind of on the wrong side of this as as people who are affiliated with the Duke. And they are sent into exile um, as, you know, you could say refugees from this yeah. religious warfare. Um, Given yeah. the amount of turmoil in the print in the courts of, of Germany alone um, for religion, for all, all these reasons that we've discussed, it I began to imagine that it must have been thousands of people, courtiers on the road looking for position. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's that's not an exaggeration, uh, given the number of courts in Germany for one reason. Yeah, or the other. I, yeah, no, I think you're really right to imagine this, you know, the rise and fall of this prince and that prince and, you know, or even um, the Reformation, right? Yeah, if you absolutely. If the prince becomes Protestant, then what happens to all the the priests and the monks exactly. and the nuns, right? So I think, you know, I, I don't, I think refugee is the right way to think of it, that mm -hmm. there are people who are forced to kind of hit the road and, and seek refuge elsewhere. Yeah. And now, the distances are short, and so you don't have to travel very far to get to the next principality and hopefully find a more sympathetic, you know, prince or ally of some sort. But, but then you have yeah. the, the problems of how to get ahead in, in, a, in an alien, well, a strange court uh, where you're mm -hmm. not known and where uh, you mm -hmm. don't know people. And that's mm -hmm. sort of what the rest of this part, next part of the story is. Um, they end up in Wolfenbüttel. Um, yes. Duke Julius of Braunschweig. Um, yes. He's interested in, in becoming a, a new um, go get him reforming <laughs> sort of, you know, uh, monarch of his little principality. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what sort of things does he want to do? So, so he takes the throne in 1568, so the year after the siege in Gotha, right? He becomes the Duke of Braunschweig. And first thing he does is introduce the Reformation. His father had been Catholic and fiercely Catholic, one of the last Catholic princes in northern Germany. So Julius says, nope, we're Protestant now. Uh, he and his wife take the throne as Protestants and begin to introduce the Reformation in all the ways that I talked about previously. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of the founding father of modern Braunschweig. So eventually he establishes a university in Helmstedt. Um, he, and there's sort of some steps along the way to creating this university. The reason you need a university is because it provides lawyers, right? It provides the kind of um, capital, intellectual capital that you need in your modernizing territory. He also puts a lot of effort into developing the economy in his territory, um, the mining industry in particular. Braunschweig is located near the Hartz Mountains, which have very rich mining resources. He creates infrastructure projects, creating canals and roads so that you can get the stuff out of the mines and get it, you know, to travel to markets and so on. So he's really this kind of modern capitalist, you know, reformed prince. And he also kind of elaborates the political bureaucracy of his territory as well to, to kind of more closely govern and regulate, you know, all of this activity. So you mentioned them a little earlier, the connection between alchemy and mining. Uh, so it would seem then that this trio of Anna and Heinrich and Philip Sumoring, they have something to offer him in terms of being alchemists. 
Is, is that they do? Yeah, they do. And in fact, Philip is the one who first makes contact with this court. And Philip, again, had this dual background as a Lutheran pastor and as an alchemist. Perfect. And it is both and it is both of these things that are very appealing to Julius. Mm-hmm. The initial contract that Philip signed. So he signs a contract to hmm. um, carry out alchemical work in this territory. And he promises to improve the yield of the mines. Right. So Uh he's going to make these, you know, he's going to be involved in this mining industry um, and he is going to produce the Philosopher's Stone. So (laughs) it is this kind of and the Philosopher's Stone is something that is kind of a catalyst that can produce produce both medicines, but also precious metals. Um, And so he signs a contract with Duke Julius and he shows up and he hires Anna Sigurd's husband, Heinrich, as his lab assistant. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the three of them are kind of allies and they appear in this town and they are going to contribute to this new project of modern Braunschweig. They arrive in 1571. Um, and Philip is the one with the official job at the court. Heinrich is the assistant, and Anna Sigonen is just the wife. <laughs> but she nonetheless starts to push her way into court. Um, how, and, uh, how does she do things differently than other courtiers? Right. So the first the first thing to note is that she's a woman and historians have written a lot about, you know, courtiers. There are lots of famous courtiers. And and, you know, we like to think about places like Queen Elizabeth's court, for example. But we tend to focus often on the men as the people who had kind of official positions. Right. So uh, so Philip Zimmering is officially an alchemist and he very quickly becomes officially a religious advisor as well. So he has a very public role and he's kind of involved in, you know, these various projects of Julius's. Anna Sigurdin doesn't really have an official position. She might have, in a different universe, um, entered into the service of the Duchess, Duchess mm-hmm. Hedwig, Julius's wife, who is this sort of very pious woman who is in charge of the, she's the kind of moral guardian of the territory um, and for kind of maintaining the propriety, right, at the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the outset, Hedwig does not like Anna Sigurdin at all. And so it becomes apparent very quickly to Anna that Hedwig will not be her point of entry into this court. Um, and in fact, she kind of hangs back a little bit in Braunschweig, which today is about a 20-minute bus ride from Wolfenbüttel. So they're sort of staying outside of the court. The court is in Wolfenbüttel, and they're sort of staying in Braunschweig observing from afar a little bit, trying to figure out how to connect up with this court. And she learns very quickly that Hedwig will not be her her point of entry. Um, And she begins to offer some some little things. She writes letters directly to Duke Julius, which is a bit unconventional for a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, She ends up taking up some little sewing projects for him. She sews him um, a shirt. Uh, She helps buy some clothes for the little princes at court. And these are, you know, kind of notably intimate ways in to make contact. Um, but on the other hand, kind of drawing on, you know, her skills. She's never going to be a religious advisor, right, mm-hmm. as a woman in the way that Philip Zimmerman could be. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, on April 1st, 1573, she sent a little manuscript to the Duke. Um, how long yeah. had she been at the court by that time? She had been at the court for about a year and change. Okay. Right. So she had sort of been, you know, trying to kind of poke her way around the court a little bit. Um, Duchess Hedwig clearly hated her. And so, yes, yeah, so she pre- presents Duke Julius with this. She, this go, she goes big. 
she could, she could. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, right she she really enough uh, with the little shirt yeah enough <laughs> you know, with the little shirts shirt. now here's what yeah. and here's what it begins in the name of god the father the son the holy spirit amen uh which i that which i anna maria zigoin currently heinrich schombach's wife which is interesting that she distinguished herself like that observe with my own eyes of the noble well-born lord lord carl uh Count and Lord of Alting, and also carried out myself with my own hand concerning the noble and precious art of alchemy. And then she gives a recipe, 20 pages of them, uh, a recipe mm -hmm. for lion's blood. Uh, yeah. This, so chapter four, it's my favorite chapter. Um, it's the kind of the heart of the book. I think the rest of it revolves around this, which mm -hmm. is this lion's blood. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Please explain this to us, uh, <laughs> although people will not believe what they hear at first. So, okay, uh, all yeah. right. Without <laughs> so this, this really happened. Yes, okay. This really happened. This, this, these, these recipes exist. So, right. So she presents Duke Julius. She says, I have carried out these recipes with my own hands, and I have observed Count Carl von Oettingen, this other, you know, new character. I learned these recipes from him and I've carried them out with my own hand. So these are recipes, we'll come back to Count Carl, but these are recipes for something called the lion's blood. And of course the recipes begin with, how do you make the lion's blood? You begin with iron and a red powder and you transmute iron into gold. So this powder in itself... That's just the first probably, step. <laughs> that's step one. <laughs> she, doesn't say what's, <laughs> she doesn't say what's in the powder, but it is probably intended to be a philosopher's stone of some sort. The philosopher's stone is described as a stone, but it usually is described as a, a red powder, sometimes something like a ruby. But, mm -hmm. you know, so step one, transmute iron into gold. Uh, sorry, lead into gold. Sorry, that should be lead. Um, and then you distill a golden oil from this gold mm -hmm. and then you have the lion's blood and the lion's blood can be used for all kinds of things it's a kind of you know miracle drug in a way and the rest of the recipes are for how to use the lion's blood so um the, First, the way i think of, yes go well, ahead why lion's blood <laughs> um so there's a long history in alchemical manuscripts of using bodily terms to mm. describe alchemical substances. And so alchemical substances are often anthropomorphized as people, mm -hmm. as male or female. That kind of gender binary is often used to describe substances that behave in opposite ways. Mm -hmm. um, things are described as bodily fluids, sometimes as menstrual blood, sometimes as other kinds of blood, the virgin's milk, right? So the, the blood part, it is, um, this oil was probably, you know, red in color as kind of viscous. And of course, blood was such a powerful substance in this time period. Yeah, it's, um, well, actually, I think, Tara, we could say that blood, in a way, blood has been important to every generation except for the last hundred years. <laughs> um, we're, we're weird because we don't think of the, the power of blood. Uh -huh. You know, when you think about it, I mean, every other 50,000 years, we've been thinking, oh, blood's really important. Um, right. Uh, but we've been sacrificing blood <laughs> for longer, a lot longer, the, for okay. a very long time. Um, so blood has uh, blood has power. 
Um, it has power. Yeah. And, uh, it has power, and it's, it's a terrifying substance, right? Yeah. And there's a long tradition of blood being seen as something toxic, particularly when it when it leaves your body, when it's yeah. not supposed to, right? Mm -hmm. When it's gore, that's that's terrifying. People pass out, um, I hear. Uh, and it's, people, <laughs> people pass out. No they, one wants to see blood. No. Nope. Right? Um, blood there's has... a long misogynist tradition of menstrual blood mm -hmm. seen as something that's toxic, that can spoil wine, that can cloud mirrors, right? That can just destroy mm -hmm. people menstruating, women shooting blood out of their eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, but on the other hand, <laughs> but also menstrual blood is also related to the most powerful, mysterious thing of all, which is birth. Yeah. Um, the creation of life. The right, creation of exactly. life. So, uh, it's the metaphorical, the actual metaphorical power of blood is something that um, we might have forgotten, but no one else, and maybe it's just, maybe it's just modern Westerners uh, for that matter. Uh, I, I, I doubt if we went to any place in India or, or, or in, in China, they would not be surprised at hearing about the powers of blood. Yeah, no, it's true. So, uh, you know, but I think that the, the key point is all the different valences of blood, yeah, right? And, yes. and and the other one to add into this is Christ's blood. Yes, of um, course. Increasingly in the 15th century, particularly in Germany, Christ's sacrifice was envisioned as a bloody sacrifice. And so, you know, the sort of redemptive power of Christ's mm -hmm. blood was another thing. So blood could be bad, it could be good, it could be generative, mm -hmm. it could be poisonous, it could degenerate things, it could corrode and corrupt, yeah. it could, you know, kind of go all different directions. We can, um, in the show notes, I can link to a couple, I mean, there's some powerful representations of this um, in the German art. Uh, would it be mm -hmm. Grimbach's crucifixion, uh, where we see <laughs> Jesus is already rotting? Um, yes, within right, three hours, yeah. it's a very powerful yeah. idea of, of blood, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, but then absolutely. that's the is that the the and then there's the altar piece where he's uh, dying bloody, and then of course when it flips open for Easter, he's rising again, um, right? <laughs> uh, in a in a very different way. So there's a transmutation of blood in a way it's going on there. Um, mm -hmm. There's a there is a famous portrait of Luther preaching, uh, speaking of, this gets us back to Lutheranism, and pointing to a crucified cross who is pouring out blood from his side. Yes, the side uh, wound. Um, the side wound, yeah. <laughs> becomes and, increasingly important in this period, yeah. Yeah, so um, the idea of, and that of course is, is, in a sense, we're being baptized in that. We're being baptized exactly. in that blood. So, and it's, it's part of his humanity, right? Yes. It's part of Christ's corporal you know, humanity, which is important. Yes, absolutely. So for all these reasons, the, the blood is important. The lion, I, I guess, force. I thought of lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, power, king of the yeah. beasts. Um, yeah, that, that might be part of it. Um, there are other lions in alchemical, you know, there are a lot of animals in alchemical text. Mm -hmm. There are peacocks and birds. Usually birds represent some kind of um, vapor because huh. they fly, right? They sure, sort of course. rise. So, they're, they're a lion. so the lion part is a little bit less clear to me exactly mm -hmm. except that the lion had some meaning in terms of heraldry in this in this region oh so. yeah okay um so, so what were what could so what can't it do well we should almost begin with this but what could it do the lion's blood in yes, particular yes, yes so you could use it to i think of it as kind of a, a stimulant a fertility kind of substance so it could for example imagine yourself in northern germany in february right hmm. in the winter time and um, the I'd lion's blood could, yeah, <laughs> the lion's blood could help your fruit trees produce fruit in the middle of winter, out of season. Mm -hmm. um, so it could kind of help generate life in that sense. 
um, you could use it to create mineral life in the form of the philosopher's stone. So you could you could turn the lion's blood into the philosopher's stone, which then in turn you could use to produce gold and silver, right? So generating mineral, sort of mineral life in that sense. And um, it could also, if a human couple, <laughs> I have to specify the human part in this context, uh, if a human couple was infertile, then the woman could take the lion's blood internally and it could help her conceive a child. And then the infant could be fed on the lion's blood once it was born. So it is also nourishing of human life. So animal, vegetable, mineral, it could create all kinds huh. of things. And it, the, certainly the, the mineral, I, I think that the, the thing is, the thought is, if I recollect from Agricola, is that uh, metals are sort of the veins of the earth. Uh, they're juices mm, exactly. in the earth that are flowing up. And so they, exactly. they can be stimulated just as any vegetable or animal life can be stimulated. Exactly, right. And so um, a crucial metaphor in all of this, which appears in Anatsipalian's recipes, is the idea of a fruit. So the fetus of, you know, after this couple takes the lion's blood internally and conceives a child, that fetus is called a fruit in these hmm. recipes. Hmm. And of course, the fruit trees producing fruit and the philosopher's stone, you know, along the way, it is also described as a fruit. And so, you know, the fruits of nature, right, in all of these different mm -hmm. um, kingdoms, as we would now think yeah. of them. But they're all related um, yes. for Anatsipalian. The other thing it can do the lion's blood is it can also kind of purify matter. And so she also includes a recipe for um, curing leprosy with the hmm. lion's blood. So which that's is, one other sort of side of it. Which of course for in the, in the, both the old and new testaments is a very powerful idea of Absolutely. ending separation, uh, healing um, corrupt matter, um, but ending separation from society. Um, mm -hmm. in, in a certain and it's also, you know, go ahead. No, you're in a certain sense restoring human community. Yes. And leprosy appears in alchemical texts as well as a way to think of so that the philosopher's stone is conceived of as curing and purifying um, ill metals. Mm. So base metals like lead are thought of as kind of sick. <laughs> but if you can purify them, then they will become gold. Because gold, so, gold is the natural yeah. state of all metals. Is that where they're all, they should all tend towards that? Or is that the, it's the best? It's the best. best okay. state, yeah. yeah. So gold is where everything is in balance. Um, the different sort of elements of, of matter are in balance, the mm -hmm. sulfuric principle and the mercurial principle. And when those are both pure and in balance, then you have gold. And when they get a little bit out of whack, then you get silver, copper, and so on. Oh, I see. So, I, so this, yeah. yeah, so this recipe for curing leprosy might also actually be another way of talking about the philosopher's stone. Sure. Gold. Yeah. It's, not, so, it's, it's unclear. As for metals, then for, for people for, for and for nature, mm -hmm. for everything. Um, Right. So she says right at the beginning, she does not claim that she worked this all out for herself. She got it from someone right. else. Um, right. Who is this guy? And what's the, tr is there a longer tradition beyond him of, of the lion's blood? Right. So the lion's blood itself is her creation, or at least it appears for the first time in these recipes. But as you say, she attributes these recipes to this guy named Count Karl, who is a nobleman, Count Karl von Uttingen, a territory in Bavaria. Um, and she says that he's the one who gave her these recipes, that he came to visit her mother's house when she was young in Saxony, and she saw him actually conduct a transmutation, um, take a little sort of pea-sized piece of powder and produce gold. 
So he is kind of her alchemical tutor, right? And he shared and shared this knowledge with her. She also claims at some point that, that Count Carl is in love with her. So that's another story. Their relationship might have been more more complicated than just um, <laughs> one of education. The, the crucial detail about Count Carl, though, um, is that Anasi Godin claims he is the son of Paracelsus. So Paracelsus is a 16th century um, Swiss-German um, physician and kind of lay theologian who is a contemporary of Luther's, basically, sort of, in that, so a previous generation. And Paracelsus was sometimes even referred to as the Luther of physicians for his really radical um, kind of philosophical and medical stance. His theology is also somewhat unconventional and radical, but the thing about Paracelsus is that while he wrote a lot about theology, he never printed any of it. It wasn't printed until much later. He did, however, publish some of his medical treatises. And Paracelsus basically um, rejected the kind of medieval tradition of humoral medicine, right? That our bodies have these four humors in them and that like metals, we are healthy when those humors are in balance. Um, and the way you can do that is through removing some of your humors through, mm -hmm. you know, purgative or laxative or mm -hmm. bloodletting, um, or perhaps taking herbal remedies as well that can help bring those things into balance. Paracelsus said, you know what, forget it. Those herbal medicines are far too gentle for this new age where there are new diseases like syphilis, for example, and the best medicines are located in minerals and metals. Those are very hard to access. It's a lot easier to distill a plant than it is to distill you know, gold, but that's where the best medicines are. So, you know, by, by the time Anna Siglerin is presenting these recipes to Duke Julius, Paracelsus is no longer alive. He had died in 1541, just five years before Luther. But his kind of afterlife is, you know, quite vibrant in the, in the German-speaking lands. There are printers who are seeking out Paracelsus's manuscripts and really want to publish these manuscripts because they feel like they can make a lot of money out of them. This is kind of cutting-edge medicine in the 16th century, but also very controversial medicine because it really challenged the medical establishment. The other thing about Paracelsus is that his interest in metals led to a reputation for an interest also not just in using metals for medicine, but also for transmutation. And it's unclear um, whether or not he kind of endorsed transmutation as a legitimate activity for physicians and alchemists, but he certainly had a reputation for mm -hmm. endorsing transmutation. And so when Anna Sigonen says, I have a direct access to Paracelsus's recipes for the transmutation of metals through his son, Count Carl, she is offering something extremely valuable that a lot of people would like to get their hands on in this period. Printers, princes, physicians, and of course, anyone who wanted to, you know, make gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she literally, what she, she her ideas are literally gold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, we get to it, but wait, uh, it can get even stranger. Um, at some point, um, actually it's in this do document, uh, Anna starts to describe the nature of her own birth. Um, yes. can you briefly explain what that is and what she's claiming or what people, be, what she's claiming for herself? The significance of this. So yeah. she begins to circulate stories at court, not only these recipes, but at the same time, the story about her own birth. She claims that she was born of her mother through what we would now call a cesarean section. 
um, that her mother was it, through sort of trauma. So she was born prematurely through cesarean section. And that as an infant, Anatsikorin was, her own body was treated with a kind of tincture, an alchemical tincture of some sort, and that she was wrapped in what she describes as a skin from another woman's body. So she's kind of wrapped up in the skin and treated with an alchemical tincture of some sort in order as an incubator, basically, to mm -hmm. kind of complete her gestation, having been you know, removed prematurely from her mother. Um, and for this reason, she claimed her body was unusual and that essentially this alchemical tincture kind of purified her body at birth. And this is the reason Anit Sigurdin says that she herself does not menstruate. So we're back to blood. Yeah. Right? She very much endorses this view that menstrual blood is something kind of dangerous and mm -hmm. toxic. Mm -hmm. And this is the result of original sin, right? That, that ordinary women are condemned to pain in childbirth and all of this. And the example of a woman who did not menstruate, but who nevertheless gave birth is, of course, the Virgin Mary. So she begins to liken herself to the Virgin Mary as someone whose body was unusually pure, both in a spiritual and in a physical sense. And she says it's all because of the way she was born. Whoa. Um, <laughs> there's, there are actually, uh, new as, uh, there are actually numerous medieval precedents for this. I mean, this is, this is actually in some ways to me, this is more intelligible than lion's blood, which is going to seem to some listeners going to say, oh, that's crazy. But you know, there are, there are others during the middle ages who more or less said the same thing about themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, or, or, I mean, this is her, the, the way in which she claims this is really interesting. Um, it's so modern. <laughs> I was a, I was a preemie baby, but I was raised with lots of drugs in an incubator, and yep. you know, uh, that's and that's, I survived. And I survived. My body came out a little strange, but yeah. you know, I survived. But, and but it was better, better than you because I'm like yeah. you know genetically modified or something like that. Exactly. If it's we, a technology. It's a technology. Exactly. If we put it in different mm -hmm. language, then say, oh yeah, well okay, that could happen. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe in 2050, <laughs> but uh, not right now. Maybe, but it's kind of yeah, okay. But the yeah. saying that I'm the incarnation of the Holy Spirit, that's weird. But of course that <laughs> that, that did happen in the Middle Ages. Yeah. And so in her, she's a wrinkle on that. It's kind of an odd wrinkle on it, but there are other people that have said strange things. Um, yeah. And, and she's interested in this capacity of alchemy to generate life, right? So we yeah. talked about fruit trees and metallic life and human life. She's already set down these recipes. And this is like the ultimate aim of alchemy. It's one thing to make metals or fruit yeah. or gemstones, but to create life is kind of the ultimate goal of the alchemists. And the way alchemists talked about this, including Paracelsus and some texts that were attributed to him is in terms of the homunculus, mm -hmm. which is kind of the, if you want to continue to use your metaphor, the test tube baby of the 16th century, yeah. um, a human that is created um, in a flask without a human without a mother, without a female body to house it. And this is thought, you know, thought to be a kind of alchemical project. It's a technological project. It's how can we create life using sperm, but not using a woman's body? Mm -hmm. um, because women are sort of problematic and dangerous. So Anna Sigurdin is sort of looking at this, I think, and saying, okay, alchemists are talking about the homunculus, um, but she looks instead to the Virgin Mary, who of hmm. course also produced life in a very mm -hmm. unconventional way, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that is what she identifies with. Virgin Mary produced Christ, right? Um, perhaps there's a way to generate life through alchemy as well. 
Now, this has a lot to do with her uh, conception and lots of people's conceptions of the end of time, the apocalypse, the last days, call it what you will. Um, we don't think of Lake Wobegon Lutherans as being much interested in the last days. That's not part of our conception of Lutheranism, but that is sure as heck. That is a mm -hmm. major beating heart of Lutheranism and, and probably just about every other ism when it come, uh, mm -hmm. in, in the 16th century. Um, everyone mm -hmm. is expecting the last emperor who, who will then usher in the final age, the apocalypse. Um, so mm -hmm. could you explain that to uh, us cause, as a difficult concept to, now? Yes. So absolutely. Everyone is convinced, you know, the end times are at hand, right? Yep. The, the apocalypse is coming. And there's evidence for this everywhere. The Reformation itself was mm -hmm. taken to be perhaps a sign of this. There was a new star that appeared in the heavens in 1572. This was something we've already talked about Duke Johann Friedrich in Gotha, who believes he's the last emperor designed, you know, destined to kind of battle Antichrist and, right. and bring on and, the last there are a lot more probable candidates. Uh, Columbus thought Ferdinand and Isabella was. Uh, exactly. The discovery of yeah. this new world is an indication the last days are here. Um, this they is the this is the millennium. There's, we've discovered something that no ancient ever knew about. You know, this is weird stuff is going on. Exactly, and crucial to all of this is the idea that new knowledge will be revealed at mm -hmm. the end of time. And alchemy is positioned in some traditions as one of those bits of knowledge that will be revealed at the end of time. So on the one hand, you have scholars and theologians and just ordinary people kind of observing the world around them and saying, I mean, we still talk this way sometimes when we talk about politics, we say, or something else, you know, the end times are at hand. Yeah, you know? yeah. And we, we maybe mean it as a joke, but they meant it for real. Yeah, that, well, you know, the, so, the, so the question was, when is it coming and yeah. how and, and how to read this? And so a star could be a sign. You could go back to scripture and read, you know, more prophetic texts and then look for sort of um, collaboration, no, corroboration mm -hmm. in the present and say that's what that prophecy was about, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was no doubt that it was coming sometime soon. And mm -hmm. the Lutherans were particularly kind of invested in this idea of the end times arriving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what, it, what what that would look like and, and when it would come, but also what that what the end times would look like as there's a very long theological tradition, lots of debate about it. Is there going to be a millennium, you know, a period of peace before the last judgment or not? And what is this going to look like? And that's a tradition that alchemists had also participated in over the centuries. Um, an alchemist named John of Rupasissa in the 15th century um, believed that the alchemical tincture could be useful for healing the bodies of um, sort of pious Christians who are battling Antichrist. They were going to need some really good medicine if they're entering <laughs> into war with Antichrist. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, so there, the alchemy was in the mix all, mm -hmm. you know, for centuries already when Anatsi Goren was engaging with this as well. And so this is all part of the, so this alchemical tincture will purify uh, the pious for that final battle. Right. And so she 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 picks up on another piece of the Paracelsian tradition as well, which is that Paracelsus was also thought to be a prophet. Mm. And she claims that Paracelsus had given his son, Count Carl, a text that prophesied that someday Count Carl would meet a woman who does not menstruate and that the two of them would use the lion's blood in order to produce lots of babies, oh. superior babies, who would essentially to restore the fertility and the longevity 
right? Mm -hmm. Of, you know, before the flood, all these Old Testament patriarchs who lived for hundreds of years, um, that they could restore the world and thereby hasten the arrival of the apocalypse. So Anasikorun is not just observing and saying, oh, I think that's a sign it's coming soon. She positions herself as someone who, with this Paracelsian prophecy, will bring about the apocalypse. Well, uh, perhaps in inevitably, <laughs> this, all felt, this also went pear-shaped. Um, yes. How and uh, what do we know about Anna's, Anna's trial? Yes. So the point that I think I want to emphasize about how it went pear-shaped is that it's not because of what we were just talking about. No, it's the right. fact that Anna, So this is the strange part. We would imagine that that would be the controversial claim. She nope. claims she's a new new Virgin Mary who's going to use alchemy to have a bunch of babies and bring on the apocalypse. That's okay, apparently, yeah. at the court. I mean, Duchess Hedwig didn't really like it, but, you know, others, Julius, he was like, okay, great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this is interesting. Maybe it'll happen. Make the lines split. Go for it. Um, that doesn't seem to be very complicated. The thing that brings her down, first of all, is the men in her life. <laughs> um, Philip Zermering and her husband, Heinrich Schombach, and a couple of other male courtiers at the court. And it ultimately goes back to the story about Gotha and the siege of Gotha and the Grumbach feud and so on and so on, that they, ever since they left after that siege, Anna Heinrich and Philip have this kind of cloud over them, this association with this, you know, bad politics, basically. And that kind of haunts them for the rest of their lives. And when they arrive in Wolfenbüttel, there are other people at the court who say, these guys are bad news. They were part of that whole angel go to business, get them out of here. They're mm -hmm. dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Duke Julius says, no, I checked them out. They're okay. They weren't really involved in that. Yes, they were there, but they were not involved in this plot to confront, you know, battle the emperor. They're fine. And they could be really useful. But there are others at court who, you know, continue to oppose their presence. And um, the kind of initial trigger is that one of the other courtiers that they're only very loosely associated with gets arrested um, for a murder that he con committed a long time ago. And he's thrown in prison and he writes to Duke Julius and says, and by the way, those guys are all frauds. Anand Siegel and Philip Zimmering, Heinrich Schaubach are all frauds and you shouldn't trust them. And Julius says, eh, okay. But then Julius's brother-in-law writes to him and says, these guys are frauds. You've got to get them out of there. And his own wife is, you know, giving him grief about having these people at court. And so it's really this kind of political legacy of what happened in Gotha that hmm. continues to haunt them. And eventually Julius begins to think, maybe I should look into this. And it's at that moment that um, Anna and Heinrich decide to leave Wolfenbüttel because they can tell that it's heating up, right? And that the tide might be turning against them. So they leave and they go to a small town up in the mountains called Goslar. They continue to work on the lion's blood um, in the small town. And Philip, he's the one with the official job, right? He asked Julius, could I, could, I'll just leave. If, if you think I'm too controversial, I'm happy to just leave. And Julius says, no, stick around. Um, Philip decides to leave anyway. Which and is bad. Julius eventually says, you know what, get back here to Wolfenbüttel, you need to answer some questions. And the trial begins to unfold from there. So it begins with essentially breaking a contract, right, with mm -hmm. Philip not fulfilling his obligations to the Duke. Um, Duke Julius appoints a, you know, a, a series of his ministers to conduct this 
series of interrogations. Anit Sigurdin is interrogated, Philip Zermering, of course, Heinrich Schombach, and a number of other people. And it begins as simply an interrogation to figure out who are these people? Are they who they say they are? You know, were they involved with the stuff in Gotha? Were they trying to defraud me with this contract? And it, over the course of the trial, um, each of them is interrogated, torture is deployed for Anit Sigurdin as well. And when we read the, the trial documents, the interrogation records closely, you can really see this kind of back and forth between Anna Sigurdin on the one hand asserting that she is a holy alchemist. She is the new Virgin Mary. She has recipes for this lion's blood that she knows how to make and it will be incredibly useful. And that she has this pure body that is destined to kind of fulfill this Paracelsian prophecy. That's her vision of herself. Mm -hmm. And the other vision that comes from her enemies at court is you are adulterous, you are a fraud, you're a charlatan, you know, your so-called alchemical medicine is actually poison, and the whole story is kind of inverted. And through the trial, through the confrontation with the executioner, who is the one conducting the torture, Anna Sigurdin eventually cracks. And in the end, she confesses to a long list of crimes, um, sorcery, murder, infanticide, poison, fraud, pretending to be an alchemist when she really wasn't, and so on and so on. How long um, <laughs> How long does she show up in the historical records? Is this just a five years that you are basically describing? The records that I have um, begin in 1571, 1575, right? So all the records are currently in Wolfenbüttel and mm -hmm. are collected in the course of the trial. So her letters that she wrote to Duke Julius and to other courtiers before she's arrested and interrogated, mm -hmm. the, the recipes, right? Some supply orders from the court apothecary. She's mm -hmm. ordering things to do her alchemical work. Um, and then the interrogation records themselves are incredibly lengthy. There are 31 folders in the archive in Wolfenbüttel, um, not just for her testimony, but for all of the people who were involved in this. Hmm. So what does this tell us? Um, <laughs> what are, I, I hate to bring this down into news we can use, and that's not, <laughs> not what I mean, but um, mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a profound book. Um, it's, it, it's one of your... Um, the professors who wrote a blurb says it's like a novel, um, but mm -hmm. of course it's not a novel. These are very real people who died mm -hmm. terrible deaths uh, and who lived very curious lives, um, even by the standards of their time. Um, what more can we make of this other than these, just a series of, uh, of strange people with very strange ideas? <laughs> so who lived long ago? who lived long ago. So I think there are two different levels. One is the historical and, and one is perhaps more meta about how we practice history. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll come back to that second one. But yeah. for, for me as a historian of alchemy, I think what this highlights is um, a kind of different thread in the alchemical tradition, which is this emphasis on alchemy as something that's generative mm -hmm. and also that intersects with Christianity in really profound ways. The fact that Anna Sieglund, maybe she wanted to be a new Virgin Mary and be important and all of that. But the fact that she chose alchemy as her vehicle to articulate that, I think draws our attention to the intersection of alchemy and Christianity in the early modern period in ways that we haven't really explored quite as much. Historians of alchemy have been very invested in 
showing that alchemy was basically chemistry and that it's important to the scientific revolution. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it is. And the fact that Newton was so fascinated by it should tell us something, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, not all alchemy was science. Um, alchemy was seen as something that could touch on some of these most profound truths about other things that people cared about. And I think we need to explore those as well. So for me, it's partly about, you know, kind of repositioning alchemy as something that can tell us about Christianity and the body, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and and the last days in that period. So that's one crucial point um, for me. A second point has to do with the, the chaos and the instability and the fragility of power in the 16th century. Yeah. Um, you know, these princes are really improvising and trying to figure it out. They're trying to create Christianity. They're trying to decide what doctrine is. They're trying to build universities and they're drawing on expertise wherever they can find it. No, I think they are re they are literally recreating all the yes. time. They are. Yes. And, and when you think about the sort of this, this, um, this, this drive over the next century, this, uh, you've alluded to it, this idea of, of what it was like before the flood, what was like before the Tower of Babel. They want, there's this drive amongst the alchemists and against, amongst the people we will eventually call natural philosophers or scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an act of recreation, which is simultaneously, they're trying to recreate Christianity. Um, they're fascinated yeah. with primitive Christianity to yes. re, to re birth Christianity. What was it like yeah. back then? What did the fathers say? What was it really like? Let's all, what's recreation? I think it's. And what were our bodies like? What were our bodies right? like? I mean, exactly. Yeah. yeah. How did they live for hundreds of years? Yeah, How is yeah, that possible? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and yet at the same time, there's kind of this, this real fear about this world that is so, pro- I don't think that you can overestimate how profoundly disruptive the Reformation was on all levels, mm. and even after a few decades into it, right? There is really this kind of fear about, uh, you know, how, how are we going to do this? How am I going to reassert power? How are we going to maintain stability? Those radical peasants were terrifying for mm-hmm. princes. Mm-hmm. And as they're kind of improvising and bringing in these experts, there's always this fear of how do I trust this person? How do yeah. I know Anasigurin is for real and not, you know, the, the seductive... <laughs> No, Cersei that, I, you know, yeah, that you I, suggested she was. I thought often of the, the you know, the famous, um, perhaps overquoted the Yeats poem, this things are out of joint, the center cannot hold. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he was writing that after World, World War One, but my goodness, 1570, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, uh, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Things fall apart. And so, you know, and, and this is the final thing that I'll say is that um, the other lesson of this, and this is why I begin and end with the 19th century, is the slipperiness of all of this. And I, what I want to say, I don't want to say, oh, those 19th century guys, they got it all wrong, right? They were invested in narratives of nationalism and, provi- and, mm-hmm. and, and progress. And so they kind of, you know, made the early modern period seem crazy. So they would seem more rational. Yes, that's all true. <laughs> but um, the fact is that Anna Sigurdin's own story was um, invented and created and spun out. She spun out one story. Others around her spun out other stories. And those stories ultimately rest on kind of nothing, right? I mean, how did you know if someone showed up in your town in the 16th century and said they were noble? Well, you might write letters to other nobles to see if you can kind of, you know, validate this. But 
people had stories about who they were and we, we value some of those stories. And we said, look at this sort of self-fashioning and creativity and Mm -hmm. brilliance of asserting humanity when we talk about Columbus. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to think about Anna Sigurdin as well as someone who is taking the shreds of her world as, you know, someone who was a teenage widow, a refugee lived through the siege and war. And she is desperately trying to put together a life that makes sense to her and that makes sense to others. And that's what everybody's doing in this period. And that story, at the end of the day, I don't know if it's true, but it made sense to people at the time and people bought it at the time. Some people, other people contested it and came back with, you know, another story, another version of events. So her trial is about contesting stories. And, you know, the 19th century is is telling that story again in yet another way. And I suppose my own book is, you know, a continuation of that tradition. I'm telling another version of Anna Sigurdin, um, which she may or may not have recognized. (laughs) (laughs) My guest today has been Tara Numadal. She's Associate Professor of History at Brown University and the author of a fantastic book, Anna Sieglerin and the Lion's Blood, Alchemy and End Times in Reformation Germany. Tara, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ronat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.